It's a lot of walking around and it's, it's pretty much 80% confusion and desperation and a feeling of um, existential just dismay or, or, you know, really like, what does it all mean? Who cares? And then you just keep going. My only faith that I have is really the faith in making things that if you start something, you actually can finish it. And then you can actually start something else and finish it again, and you will get better. Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities Talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Newswanger. Erica Heilman's podcast, Rumble Strip, covers a range of Vermont-related topics, from mental health, hunger, and homelessness, to deer hunting, cheerleading, and donut shops. In this talk, Erica discusses the interview process and shares stories from her podcast, which she describes as extraordinary conversations with ordinary people. Erica's talk was recorded at the Norwich Congregational Church on December 4, 2019, for our First Wednesdays program. Here's Erica. So I figured we would start by listening to something. Um, I brought a, a, a short uh, piece of a story about a farmer in Springfield, Vermont, Peter Dunning. Um, this aired, I don't know, I made this a few years ago. So we'll, we'll start with that, how about? I was a slave here. This has been my existence for 40 years and uh, I can't imagine not being here. I don't know, I say I'm up here, I'm cut off and I like it. <laughs> People say, well, what are you gonna do now? Now that I'm not farming, I don't know. Peter Dunning's farm is a Vermont hill farm. 136 acres of forest and orchards and wet spots and steep, rocky pasture picked over by farmers for hundreds of years. The kind of place that does not lend itself to the industrial production of anything. Instead, it lends itself to the production of everything. Peter has farmed here mostly alone for nearly 40 years. Wives have come and gone, children have come and gone, and now he's getting done, and the animals are gone, and the farm is growing up around him. Here's Peter Dunning. I'd grown up on a farm for whatever that was worth. I was used to animals and, and uh, dairy cows. And, and then, you know, there was a big cultural change, and I really got into uh, the back-to-the-land movement. And I, I was a Scott Nearing admirer. And my other hero is Wendell Berry. So it was back to the land, and this was a perfect place. I just wanted to get out of the system. I didn't want to just go to work and do a meaningless job, make money, and hand it over to somebody for wood and food and cars and God knows what. And... The diversity is what spoke to me. Uh, as many different kinds of, of animals, of plants that occupy me and the farm in as many diverse ways and time of the year as possible. 
So you've got sheepdogs and sheep, and then you've got cows and pigs, chickens. My, my wife and I slaughtered 25 chickens every Friday that we sold at the farmer's market the next day. God, I mean, I sold everything down there. I sold honey. I even sold black walnuts. I could take a sheep out of the barn, shoot it in the head, hang it, gut it, cut it up in my kitchen, cook it at the farmer's market, and sell lamb shish kebabs that no inspector had ever even heard of. <laughs> I, I made a living at that. I'd make three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a year doing sheepdog demonstrations and land, lamb shish kebab cookouts. Then more and more restrictions came in. Had to be a federally inspected slaughterhouse. Now you have to have, you know, the weight and when it was slaughtered and where and... I, I never was much of a of a cooperator. <laughs> I remember I was out there one night and and I had pigs being born and the the sow was eating each one of them as they came out because they she was terrified. It was about two o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter and I was out there in my in my underwear with barn boots on and trying to separate these baby pigs that hit the ground and run from the time they capable of moving and trying to save them from the sow who was determined to eat each one. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, I had a ewe having triplets. <laughs> that was really hectic. <laughs> this is two or three o'clock in the morning. I got my barn boots on, period. <laughs> Yeah, there was some other disaster that same night. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Chimney fire or something. It was awful. <laughs> so you wonder why you drank. <laughs> I was aware that this was coming to an end, that I no longer had the market. I'd given up the farmer's market. I no longer... I was getting older and older and older, and uh, I just couldn't keep up with all the work that the farm required. And uh, it was Labor Day. It was September 6th, and um, I just was going down the stairs to just use the bathroom, and uh, I can't tell you how. I just fell, hit my head at the bottom. I was up in uh, the VA hospital for the winter. I had brain surgery and lost my right eye and spent the winter off of the farm, you know. And with this eye, I know I can't farm. And what do I do with 136 acres of farm that I have loved for my whole life that I now physically can't take care of the way I have. It takes an enormous amount of detail and knowledge of every little aspect of farming that takes a lifetime to accumulate. And it, it's not worth much anymore. But I feel like I really 
lived my life as thoroughly as one can live. Just completely involved in in the land with all of it. I mean, the woods, the barns. You know, now I'm my last job. What I'm doing right now is cleaning out the sheep ship from the la for the last time. And I even sold my manure spreader to my friend and have to borrow it back for this last job. And I'm finding myself really uninterested in doing it. <laughs> uh, it's an end of something that I just sort of don't know how to grasp. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to the farm. As I said, I just can't keep up with it. You can see it's all just overgrowing. So I'd actually meant to start with something funny. Sorry about that. <laughs> so that's a story that's not very important. He's not very important. It's not an important story. Um, and I guess that's, that's the story I like. Those are the stories I like. I like to make stories about the things that happen between the important parts. I think that's what I like to do and because of so podcasts are essentially radio shows with no FCC guidelines <laughs> you know you get to do what you want and because of digital technology the way that it is now you can do it you can afford to do it in your own bathroom um, by yourself um, and you can you can afford to make these things and there's no station manager guarding the door so it's a great time to be alive in audio you know it's what's different about podcasting too is that the, or at least as it started it's kind of become a tsunami of programming now and a lot of programs now are are, are um, sort of made by committee um, but when it began way back in the ancient days of I don't know 2005 or whatever um, they were small things and they developed cult followings and what's beautiful about a community of people who listen to a podcast is they seem to be invested in in the the whole venture so it's not it's very personal it's not like I'm turning on the radio and whatever comes out comes out you're choosing to listen to it you, you, you make a decision that you want to do it, you get on the train. And what that means for me is that I'm allowed to fail, which is really important to me. Um, I can make crappy shows every now and then, and by and large, the listeners who listen to the show will stay on the train. They're like, I wonder what that was about. wonder why she did that. And I, I like that. It makes it seem like they're, they're committed to the, 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 the larger arc of what I'm trying to do as I'm figuring it out. That was Peter Dunning. He's not important, but he, the goal is that you are invited to climb into his life, um, to get into the front seat with him, um, and to feel yourself in him, too. Um, that's, that's, that's the hope. Um, I also, you know, I, I think I've always thought that Everybody knows something that if I knew it, I could do life better. Like I could, fig I could figure out how to get through my day better. Everybody's an expert in their own life and they all know something that if I knew it, I'd be better for it. So finally, it's a pretty selfish venture, this thing that I'm 
that I'm doing. Um, the other thing is I, I wasn't hearing, when I started this show, I think it's changing now, but I wasn't hearing Vermont on the radio. And I wanted to. I'm from here, I was born here, and it's, it's a cellular experience of a place. And I wanted to hear this place on the radio. And I hate this place. I mean, I, I love Vermont and I hate Vermont, which is sort of like a marriage. I, I've never been married, but my guess is that it's sort of, a, it's all of those things. And so I, I wanted to get at the dark places and also the confusing places, or just, I just wanted to hear the sound of the place on the radio or on the podcast. And in fact, you know, when you say, well, you go to your podcast, whatever, to hear the show, really, you just, I mean, go to the website and click play, and you can hear it that way too. So it can be very simple um, to do. It's not, um, I don't understand. We're getting better with the whole podcast thing, but it's taking a while. People still say, like, so when are we going to watch your podcast? Like, <laughs> how many years? How many years? Um, yeah, so I guess I think that if I interview enough people in the world that I live in, maybe the confluence of all these voices will start to, to, to feel like this place. All told, all together, it'll sound like where we live. That's what I'm hoping to do. Um, I'm now going to play something that is less uh, serious. <laughs> Um, this is a show that I made in a fit of desperation. Um, a few years ago, we had that horrible win. We've had a couple consecutive awful winners, um, but this was a bad one, and it was just went on and on. It was cold, and then there was endless snow, and it was March, and I just, I was depressed. I get seasonal depression, and I just had to get out and go find people to talk to. So I decided, you know, it occurred to me that in the winter, a lot of us spend you know, around, you know, how many months does winter go on? Five, five months? Anyway, a lot of months, like almost a half a year. We are, we spend our whole lives, like within 10 feet of our wood stoves. You know what I mean? So it's this weird thing that people who don't live here, they wouldn't have any, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, there's this object in our house that we tend and we huddle around for months. So anyway, I thought, that's a good excuse. I'll go out and I'll just talk to people about their wood stoves, how they do it, what they do. And so I drove around. I went to the, my kid's school in Cali. I live in Calais, Vermont. Or I, that's where I'm living in St. Jay, but that's where I, as my main home, where my place is Calais. Anyway, I drove around and interviewed a bunch of people about their wood stoves. And this is what came out. Or this is just a tiny piece of it. So this is two and a half minutes, just so you don't feel anxious. The thing about audio is you have not nowhere to put your eyes. And in a way, that's what makes it better than video, because with video, it's kind of like this. It's out there, and you're like, you know, you look at it, and you kind of give yourself over to it. But with audio, you have to actually join it. So it's very intimate, and it's kind of weird to do it with other people. So I've never, I've never really known how to um, make that easier for people. So good luck with that, okay? <laughs> All right, here's, here's a wood stove. I don't know. I kind of keep a little bit of kindling wood on hand because at nights I just live in a house trailer, so I don't need it really that hot. So now I've got dry wood. I'm on top of it now instead of the green wood. I don't like that. It's just don't warm up enough. And, and I work outside all winter, so I get home. I want it to be about Florida weather. 
80, 90. Then I'll turn the stove down a little bit after I get thawed out. But, but. You know, the farm in the summertime, I'm haying and stuff, so I try to cut a little bit, but when I don't have time, most of it's in the fall. You ever run, you ever just haven't made it, didn't make it, didn't get oh, there? Yeah. Every year I run it. I get low and then I gotta go cut some and me and him went and cut some before we got the last snowstorm so it's sitting in the yard all we gotta do is cut it up and split that up and put it in I should have enough to go me until hopefully May. <laughs> when I go out and I look at my wood pile and it's buried under four feet of snow and I've shoveled it out and shoveled it out and I'm getting down there and the kindling's frozen in and I have to go down to my buddy's house because my axe broke to borrow the axe to split some wood to get the wood stove going. The propane looks like a better alternative. Although, I gotta say, the heat is different. You know, that bone-chilling cold you get, it just it just feels so nice. It's like, it's like eating soup on a cold day. The default moments of the day when you're, like, you're between activities, you're standing right in front of the thing. You know, you've got your phone, and you're, you know, you're checking your email, or you're, <laughs> and you're standing right in front of it. And the funniest thing is, like, when a number of people have this same plan, and it's not a big stove, you know, so people are jockeying for position. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, you end up with a line of people, like a, <laughs> like you know, large and small people in front of the stove, just standing there, like with their, with their backs to the stove. And I can't believe that we're the only ones who have this, who experience this phenomenon. <laughs> it's like a bus stop. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We're queuing up for, for nothing at all. Just, <laughs> just staying warm. Yes. So that's a little piece from Wood Stove. I think that the, the, the show basically asks the existential question, you know, what's going on? I think that's all I'm ever trying to figure out is what's going on? Um, you know, but the, the idea of, of things not being important or of, these, or of the stories not being important stories, I think about the, the important stories in the news, right? The things that we read about when we go to VT Digger and we read about, you know, um, the mental health care crisis, right? That we don't have enough beds and w w these systemic problems that we have in the state. We read about them, you know, we, we care about them. You know, my mom cares about them, but she doesn't care that much. I mean, she cares, but she doesn't care every day. And, and I always, I think to myself, well, who is that? Who, who is the problem? If we don't understand what it is, it's really hard to care about it. So very often we hear news, but we don't understand who all the people involved are. We hear from experts a lot of the time, important, you know, that we hear from them. But we never hear from the people who are actually doing the work every day so that we can climb into this problem that is in fact our problem that involves people we see every day at the grocery store and at school. And so I think that there's a, 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 a role for more documentary-style work to complement the, the, the news that we see in the news. Um, I made a story a few years ago. I have a friend who's a nurse who told me that there was an elderly 
gentleman with dementia who was living in her hospital and had been living in her hospital for, I think, three years. And I was shocked, you know, and that he was living in the hospital because they had nowhere to place him. There was nowhere to, for him to go. And so, and then I learned that this was, I mean, I didn't know because I wasn't reading the news about the ER crisis, which is a crisis and has been ongoing for a long time. But I didn't know, and I knew if I don't know, my mother definitely doesn't know. And, you know, she'd want to know. So how do you tell that story in a way that is going to get my mom to know? I mean, my mom was a really smart, thoughtful person. I'm not running my mom down at all. Just people who are busy with a lot of laundry and jobs and stuff to do, how do we, how do we find each other in, in, in the news somehow in these stories? So anyway, I made a story about the emergency room problem that led to a series that I made on the mental health care system just in general in the state of Vermont. What is it? Who is that? Where do all these people work? What's it like at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the Brattleboro retreat? You know, what is it like to live with schizophrenia in Burlington? So that we all begin to understand, oh, this is us. This is all of us. Um, and I just feel as though if we can get that, if we can get underneath and inside of, it's easier to then read the news and feel, and feel invested in it. So anyway, this is a, um, this is a, uh, a small cut from that show, from the ERs, and I think that it features um, nurses and also maybe a cop or a sheriff. Anyway. I did have an evening once where I had, was taking care of somebody with, you know, an unstable, stable psychiatric condition and a family in end of life, coping, you know, whose, whose family member was dying. So I was going back and forth between the family whose family member was dying and was in hospice care in our facility and the patient who was having a um, be, sort of a behavioral manifestation of their mental health issue that needed to be addressed. And having to make that transition from one person to the other, both of them patients I was taking care of, was a real challenge. To be what I needed to be, where I needed to be for that patient in the span of just walking across the unit was, I mean, we do the best we can, but you just feel quite depleted. I'm a lieutenant with the Sheriff's Department, Caledonia County Sheriff's Department. I'm in the room a lot of the times when they are being told you wait here for mental health to come here. Um, we're going to medically clear you. But you may be here for weeks because you're going to be warehoused here till mental health comes in every day and calls these hospitals to see if there's a room available for you to go to. You're spending million-plus dollars a year paying sheriff's departments to watch mental health people in hospitals. It's given out to sheriff's departments to come in and stand guard at a door. They cannot leave the room. They have the bathroom there and they get the meals brought in, this and that. So basically they're, they're, they're a prisoner in those rooms. Yesterday, for instance, I had to sit at the door in the ER of one of the rooms to make sure this guy didn't come out of the room. He was kind of ramping up, they call it. Um, some ramp up out of frustration. If someone, some ramp up because they're sitting in a room for six days, which you and I would do the same thing, 
with no mental health issues would probably have a mental health issue after sitting in a room for five or six days not being able to come out. So even people with semi-acute or acute mental illness, they realize that they're in a room and not being helped and they're being told to stay in this room and don't come out. We had a gentleman recently who was here for three weeks at least, three weeks. He was voluntary. Um, he was depressed. They felt that he needed to be hospitalized and he was willing to be hospitalized. But most of the hospitals didn't feel like he met criteria for hospitalization and they get to decide that. We can present them to Brattleboro and Rutland and every place else, but those hospitals decide whether they meet criteria for hospitalization and they didn't really feel that he met criteria, but he didn't feel safe going home and so he was just here day after day after day after day after day. That's really frustrating. So day after day after day after day, this person's here and where am I going? And, you know, how come nobody wants me? And why can't I get help? And they're not getting it here. They aren't getting therapy. They aren't having groups. They see the psychiatrist, but it's once, maybe twice a day for a few moments. They aren't getting any of the other things that they would be getting from an inpatient hospitalization. So it's no better than if we had a, had a stall for horses. They have food, water, and shelter. And uh, there you go. Uh, I, I'll talk now a little bit about how, how I make this show. Um, it's really two things. It's, it's interviewing and it's editing, right? It's getting, collecting sound and then sticking it in this computer and then figuring out what it is. Um, interviewing is a really interviewing is is uh, interviewing is I shouldn't I can't say it in a church that's how I feel about interviewing it's a very special thing to do it's a great feeling when it goes well I mean it's so interviewing is essentially a conversation between two people but it's much more than that when you have a microphone it's um, it it condenses the energy somehow it changes things it's not just a regular conversation I'm not there in an interview to tell you my life story, right? I'm there to get good tape, and I'm, I'm there, and in order that that could, might happen, something needs to happen between us somehow. So interviews are two things. There's content, there's yada, 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 yaka, yaka, you know, it's what we say to each other, right? But then there's also dynamic between people, which is just as interesting. So if you're at a party, you're talking with a person, as a mammal, you are, you are as interested in the, like, who is this person? What, what is this person about? Like, what did he mean by that? What, what was that gesture about, right? You're, you're animals figuring each other out. That's, that's dynamic that's happening. And when you listen, we're, our ears are so smart. If you listen to the sound of that conversation, you can hear all that dynamic. And it's, it's, what, it's, it's as interesting to you as what is being said. Not always, like again, if you're reading the news or you're hearing the news, or you're not listening to dynamic, but good audio is as much about dynamic between people as it is about content, right? It's about what is happening between people because we, we're interested in that, right? We're human. I think too that the, the, the goal is to find a third place with a person. So it's me and you and we're, we're talking with each other and at a certain point, You've forgotten the microphone, but the microphone has, is still charging the room, but you've forgotten the actual object. 
And at a certain point, if, if things go really well, then we're in some third place together. We're not, it's not me and it's not you, but it's, we're in some other place together. It's the third place. I can't explain it, but it's, it's almost like what it is. It's, it's, at, it's the point where I'm saying, I don't know, and you're saying, I don't know. That's what, I, that's what it is. It's, it's, we've combined, maybe that's what it is. We're both, we're both back to that question of what's going on together. And that's a really remarkable thing to have happen with another person, a stranger. And it's a really good thing to record. It's an interesting thing to record. In, a, in an interview, you can, you know, just on a practical level, interviews uh, start easily. I mean, I, if I'm holding a microphone, then I am, um, it is my job to make you feel comfortable. And I'm nervous. I've never arrived to an interview without clammy hands. I've always, it, and because it, because I'm always nervous and I'm always partly hoping that it will be canceled. You know what I mean? It's like, I just need a snow day. I'm always hoping for a snow day. And it's just because I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I dread it. I don't want to do it because it matters to me. And I don't, like, I don't want to do it because it costs a lot. It feels very high risk because you're walking into the home or the office or the, you know, street bench of a person who you're going to try to find or somehow. And that's a very... Tall order, that's what it is. That's a tall order. And um, so I'm always very, very nervous going into an interview. But there is, it is a sublime experience when, it's, when, it, when, it's, um, when it goes well. Um, so then there's the editing. And the editing is just, for me anyway, the editing is me in a, a little um, area in what I now live in an apartment in St. Johnsbury. And it's just a just a little table and it's 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 a lot of walking around and it's it's pretty much 80% confusion and desperation and a feeling of um, existential um, just dismay or, or you know really like what does it all mean who cares no one cares no one's waiting for this Nobody even knows I did this, and nobody cares. So there's a, there's, that's about 80% of making things, in my experience. And then you just keep going. So the only thing, I don't have um, a religion, but I, my only faith that I have is really the faith in making things, that if you start something, you actually can finish it, and then you can actually start something else and finish it again, and you will get better. And there's every reason to not finish. All the reasons in the world not to finish, right? But if you finish, you will have this feeling of God. You'll have this feeling of, of, of deep satisfaction. And, um, and it might be terrible. You know, it could be terrible for a really long time. In fact, it will be terrible for a really long time. But it won't be terrible to you. And if you keep going, you, abs- you will certainly get better. And to me, that is, that, is, um, that is the closest thing I have to religion, is, is that. Um, and people are always saying, like, I want to start a podcast. Let me start a podcast. And I'm like, start a podcast, you know? But you just have to actually just do it. Do all the things, and then you actually... The only difference between a podcast produ- or you know, a writer and a non-writer is just a writer writes. That's it, you know? Um, so 
it's, I, I feel like it's more like, I don't usually have a plan when I start a story. And I think I wouldn't have the nerve to start a story if I had a plan. So if I, I see a defense attorney who, I used, I used to work as a private investigator, and I know a lot of really interesting defense attorneys. They are such difficult, funny, fascinating, good people, but hard. Anyway, I thought, I want to talk to a defense attorney. So I went out and did a bunch of interviews with defense attorneys and then had that horrible reality of I have a lot of tape and I don't know what the hell I'm doing with it. So thus begins the 80% of the, 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 the dismay. And you just sculpt. It's like, scu it's like sculpting. It's like you just learn and learn the material. You, you fall in love with the material. You, you get close to the material and closer and closer. And then suddenly you think, oh, I wonder what that would sound like with that. Or even the way it's tonal also. It's like, oh, I love the way that voice lifted there. And I bet it would land nicely when she says that over there. So it's like putting a puzzle together completely at random. Though it, some, it often will group thematically. But I don't ever really have a plan when I'm starting, starting an edit. Um, and I don't know how long it will be, if it's going to be like three minutes or an hour. I don't know how long things will be. I, I make it sound like I, ha I know nothing. And I, I mean, I think at this point, I know some things. I mean, I do know it's not like I'm starting from absolute scratch. But it, there is a scratch-like feeling at the beginning of, of everything. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it's, you know, again, there's the what's being said. And then there's how good is it being said. You know, good tape is good tape. Bad tape is bad tape. You know the difference, you know? Is it interesting or is it boring? I mean, I'm making entertainment. Like, it's entertainment. I'm not, if it's not entertaining, why, you know, who would listen? Why would I even listen, right? So it, it needs to be entertaining. Uh, so you're looking for good tape. Um, so that's, and I do notice that sometimes people don't, like, they know, but he's saying this important thing. I'm like, yeah, but it's really boring the way he's saying it. So, I mean, that matters. I think that, that matters. Um, so I'm going to finish now, and just by saying, that I don't really know what the word story means. I think people talk about stories all the time. And you know, if you talk to Ira Glass, and uh, then you would hear that a story is a very effective story is, you know, this happened, then this happened, then that happened, and then this happened in the end, and this is what it all means. And I think that's a really good way to tell a story. But I just think there are a lot of other good ways to tell stories that don't need to follow that pattern. And I think that what's beautiful about podcasting is people are finding ways, their own ways, to do that. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the last thing is, I, you know, I don't, I often worry that I don't know what, you know, that, that, that what I'm doing makes any difference or that it, I like doing it. It's, I enjoy doing it. it I don't know that it matters, really, in the scheme of things. But I guess my only hope is that people, especially now, when people are, when it's, we're in such divided times, that if people can find each other, um, that that's got to be inherently useful, you know? Um, and that's what I'm hoping. I want you to fall in love. I fall in love with all of these people, and I, I, I want you to fall in love with them, too. I'm going to play one more thing. This thing is about the Special Olympics, and it was made in a few, a few years ago. My son and I volunteered at the Fall Special Olympics in Northfield, and it was, um, you know, 
all kinds of you know, soccer, I don't know, soccer mostly, but um, it was really fun. So this is a piece from that. I'd like to welcome to the stage Sean Fahey, who will be leading us in the Athlete Oak today. <laughs> I cannot win. Let me be brave in the attempt. Thank you. You do not look very nervous. No. Not even a little? No. Why? Because playing sports is something I enjoy to do. I go out to have fun. At my age, I'm 41 years old, my skill level is so high. I just love it. Everybody comes back and like, oh no, Herb's here. Okay. Come on, guys. Come on. Be ready. You guys got this. You are? You owe this ball. The energy. All right, now I'm feeling kind of nervous, but good. I guess that goes with every other game. What position are you going to play? Hoping to be goalie, but I'm not sure. Why would you ever hope to be goalie? It sounds like a terrifying position. <laughs> well, it is, but I've seen it done on TV, and I just like to try it out, see how good I am, because I like chasing the ball around, punching it. I plan in future to be on a professional team, and this is a step closer. Are you guys in school? I graduated, I graduated. last year. I had a hard time in school because people that are the higher function called us all retards or tart tarts or slow or ridiculous. I used to also get picked on it in the lunchroom because the way I ate because I was big. People think just the people on Special Olympics, oh, they're not going to get nowhere. They're not going to do anything. Hey, listen. We got just it's, as much. It's, it's a big step to coming here. I mean, mm -hmm. we're playing teams that we don't normally play. So this is a big step. I'm playing, I'm playing very awesome. It's, it's an awesome experience. I, I did amazing out there. Final 10 seconds, I finally got the goal, goal shot in there. Got the shot for the goal right in there. I said I was surprised. I was the whole entire team only when I kicked that one. Well, my school life is all right, normal, but it's hard to get used to fitting in with the other kids. Why? Uh, because they're different, you know, saying other words, that kind of stuff. But I'm different than them, okay? I'm just a positive kid. <laughs> so how do you manage that? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I try to ignore them, but I have a little anger thing since I was a kid. But, and, how, and how do you manage that? I don't know. I calmed down a little bit, I think. Is this your first time? No, Senator. How do you, how do you, what do you love? I love just being with all my friends. No. And, and what do you think people don't understand about the, if, if, if they've never been before? What would you tell them? That you can have fun if you're just, just smelling and it doesn't matter 
because you're not allowed to do it in school. Because school, you're not allowed because you're not fast enough. Here, you can do it. At school, you're not allowed to. No, you're not allowed to do it because, well, that was years ago when I was in high school. But it's because you can't, you can't do it because you're not fast enough. Or you can't kick it right. Or here, you can just do whatever and then just enjoy it. I love it. You don't get picked on in Special Olympics. But in other sports, you do. In school, yeah. Tears. But I like here. It's fun. And then it's not all about winning, it's about having fun. I love it. And getting the bronze is Rosie Palou. Why do you do it? I do it because when I was younger, I played high school basketball for one year. I was on a JV hot basketball team. They found out I had an intellectual disability, and they kicked me off the team. Now today, when you're in high school, if you keep your grades up, they allow you to play. And I wish I could be in high school today and be out, be out playing high school basketball and have more games. But when I was younger, I couldn't play. And, and that's because it's a, they didn't know that people with disability were sometimes better than the junior high guy down the hall who had the hot girlfriend on the, on the cheerleading team, you know? Would you say that the Special Olympic Games play a pretty big role in your life? It plays a big, big role in my life. I mean, I'm 41 years old, 42 years old, but you know what? I feel like a little teenager out here. You know, I feel like ha-ha high school coaches, you, you could have had a good player. I would be on my hands and knees right now kissing uh, uh, whatever her name is, Kennedy, the Kennedy girl, kissing her feet, saying thank you for creating a foundation. You know, we're humans. We all bleed red. That's all I got. Anybody have questions or? Thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit vermonthumanities.org slash podcasts for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.